Lord, we are just delighted this day to be here to serve you, to listen to you, Lord, to praise you, to worship you. Lord, when we consider our condition apart from you, then yes, we should fear, and maybe, Lord, even fear everything else that is in the world around us. But, Lord, knowing exactly who you are with the healthy, right fear, Lord, that that we understand that you are the God who not only punishes, but also the God who saves and saves to the uttermost, that, Lord, we come to you in great confidence. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today, that, Lord, our hearts would be changed, that we would be transformed in coming in proximity with the Lord Jesus. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Last week, we entered into a new section of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 14, if you will. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. And within these chapters, starting from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 19, we will see the glory of the Lord Jesus as he does remarkable acts and he teaches astonishing truth. And we'll also see that as more of his glory is on display, there is an increasing polarization among the population overall. For a time, some are going to be attracted to Jesus. They will be drawn to his spectacular miracles in the way that he seems to be able to put the religious leaders in their place. But when he challenges and confronts everyone with his teachings and commends them to obey, then they begin to disassociate themselves with him. And as we mentioned last week, you either are for completely Jesus or you are against him. There is no straddling the fence with him. Jesus does not give you that option. I would also build upon that for clarity's sake that that you must accept Jesus and who he is on his terms. You can't pick and choose the times that you want to agree with Jesus and then say, well, I don't necessarily agree with him on that, as though following Jesus is some type of buffet of beliefs where you can pick and choose what you want, what seems palatable to you in that moment. In fact, two chapters later in Matthew 16, Jesus is going to challenge his own disciples with these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He is either Lord of all of you, or he is not. Now as we begin chapter 14, our author Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, provides his readers with an excursus. An excursus is a digression from what is written in order to supply relevant background information. These are things that the reader needs to know, but are not necessarily important to the plot at this point in the story. And Matthew provides this excursus so that we can know four different facts here. Number one, we just saw how citizens of Jesus' hometown were offended by him. But now Matthew tells us what the governing authorities think of him. It will answer the question of why it appears that Jesus is given free reign to run all around Galilee without being impeded by Herod. Number two, it is within these next 12 verses here that we find out what happened to John the Baptist. We last heard of John back in chapter 11, and now we discover why he was in prison and what was his final outcome. Number three, we will also see how closely John and Jesus were associated with one another. There is continuity in their ministries. And number four, it's going to set the scene for what happens next in Jesus' mission. And we're going to examine each of these briefly. I like this little section because it deals with a personal struggle that I have all the time. I'll allow us to observe two different men here who are motivated by the same emotion 
which will serve as our application this morning. And you can see these points in your outline in the worship guide. So please use that to follow along if you will. But we read in Matthew chapter 14, the first two verses, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work at him. News of Jesus was growing. It had even reached the ears of Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, this is not Herod the Great who tried to murder Jesus when he was a baby. That Herod was a puppet king ruling on behalf of Rome, and the Romans preferred him to rule as he was a cunning ruler who kept the Jews in line. And after he died, Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided three ways among his three living sons. Now, he had a couple of other boys before this uh, that were from a, a different marriage, But he had them executed because he thought they were trying to plot to overthrow his throne. But the three remaining living ones were each given some property and each had the title of Tetrarch. Archelaus, the older brother, was given the southern part of the kingdom, Judea and Idumea. Herod Antipas, the Herod that's mentioned here within this verse, was given Galilee and Perea, the area that would have been known as the northern kingdom of ancient Israel. And his brother Philip was given the northeastern territory of his father's empire, the smallest and probably the least prosperous of the three. Now, Archelaus was probably the most ambitious, but he was tyrannical and he was incompetent. And he was too heavy-handed with the Jews, creating too much controversy. So the emperor had him banished to Gaul within 10 years of his reign. And his territory was given to a Roman governor to rule, one appointed by the emperor himself. And the most famous of those governors was a man by the name of Pontius Pilate, who would rule over Judea. And like his father, the second brother, Herod Antipas, was a cunning ruler. And while he did not acquire more land to rule over, his reign was as long as his father's. He knew how to play the political game. And he will have several important parts to play in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And both he and his younger brother Philip are involved here within this excursus. But it's around this time, as Jesus was most popular in Galilee, that Herod became aware of Jesus and his miracles. Now we're not told how, but perhaps he learned it from Cusa, a member of his court. In Luke chapter 8, verse 3, we hear of Joanna, who is the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And she was one of the many prominent women that gave money out of their own pockets to provide for Jesus and his disciples. But the miracles Jesus performed were so stunning that Herod Antipas wondered if Jesus had been John the Baptist raised from the dead. And in a minute, we will see how Herod's fear of this led him to allow Jesus a free reign to do as he pleased in Galilee. So now at this point, in the first two verses, is when we discover that John is dead. And now Matthew needs to explain to his readers how that happened. When we last encountered John in chapter 11, he was in jail. And he had sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the Messiah or if they should look for another one. And if you remember from that sermon, John had a moment of misunderstanding. He had assumed that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to become a political leader and usher in justice in a temporal way. He didn't clearly understand that Jesus had a much greater mission to be king over everything over everybody, not just the Jews, and by his atoning death on the cross, he would obtain justice for the sinner before a holy and just God. 
Therefore, Jesus sent back to John testimony that the prophecies were being fulfilled in order to assure John that everything was going as planned. And immediately after that, Jesus praised John to the entire population that were crowded around him. Jesus honored John and his ministry as the forerunner, even though the prophet's knowledge was limited about him. And it's not until this excursus that we discover why John was in prison in the first place. He had called out Herod Antipas's sin. And we're told this in verses 3 and 4. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, there is a lot of intrigue packed into these two verses, and it is a little complicated. So let me try to provide you with a broad overview of it. I'm so sorry that I'm doing this. I'm a historian. I can't help myself. I have to explain this, okay? But it is a little bit complicated here. Now, if you remember, a little earlier, I mentioned that Herod the Great's youngest son, Philip, you remember that? This was Herod Antipas's younger brother. Now, this next part is a little creepy, but not unusual for the day. But Philip had married his niece Herodias, his niece Herodias, who was the daughter of his older half-brother Aristobulus. That's one of the brothers or this, one of the children that Herod had had executed because he suspected his son was part of a plot against him to take his throne. So keep that in mind. Philip married his niece Herodias, who was also the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Got it? That's creepy enough, but not unheard of. Now, around the same time, Herod Antipas was in an arranged political marriage to the daughter of Aretas, king of the Nabataeans, which was a region in Jordan. And if you've ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you've seen Petra, the capital of Nabataea. It's the famous carved entrance, you know, where the so-called Holy Grail is housed. When you see that scene in the movie and Herod, he divorced his wife and took his brother Philip's wife, which was unlawful on two different fronts here. Herod divorced his wife, not for just grounds, but in favor of marrying another woman, violating both Malachi chapter two, verse 14, and later Jesus's words in Matthew 19, nine, which is also related to being against covetousness. But he also married his brother's wife violating the incest laws of Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20, verse 21. So if you're following, Herod took Herodias, his brother's wife, who was also his own niece by his half-brother. Herodias obviously didn't mind this because it made her more powerful. And John, whose ministry operated around Bethany, which was in the region of Perea, took note of this and called out Herod Antipas and his lover Herodias by name. So that's how John came to be in prison, for speaking against this unlawful marriage. But Herod and Herodias, they, they would have preferred to put John to death. And we read of this in the next part of the verse, and we're told why Herod Antipas did not. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Now keep that in mind. Herod didn't kill John because he feared the people. He cared what others thought of him. 
And then we have this really remarkable statement in Mark chapter 6. Keep a finger here and turn to Mark chapter 6 because you really need to see this with your own eyes, all right? Remember, we're going to come back here again to Matthew chapter 14 pretty soon here. But keep a finger there. But Mark chapter 16, or Mark chapter 6, sorry. Look here, Mark chapter 6, verse 19. And Herodias... Remember, that's Herod's wife at this point. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. That's John the Baptist they're talking about. But she could not. Why? Verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This speaks so much about the characters of these two men, right? Herod recognized John as a righteous and holy man. And obviously, John kept on preaching despite being in prison. And yet, his subject was not always harping on Herod's unlawful marriage. Otherwise, I don't think he would gladly hear him. But he continued his message on the kingdom over and over again. Yet nevertheless, John didn't shirk the issue. He refused to stay silent on Herod's unlawful marriage. Isn't that fascinating? Remember, in Matthew, we saw that Herod didn't execute John because he feared the people. Yet also, here is another motivation in verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. So there was already some kind of conviction happening in Herod's soul. He felt compelled to keep John safe. But don't confuse conviction with obedience in the life of an unbeliever. Because it would be a conviction that he would eventually overcome entirely as he oversees the execution of the disciple James and tries to kill Peter later. Perhaps after John's death, he felt safer from God when in his mind it seemed like nothing bad happened immediately afterwards. But back to Matthew chapter 14. For location purposes, we assume that John is in prison in Herod's fortress in Macarius. And now we learn of the event that led up to his death. It's Herod's birthday. And he has a party where he is surrounded by his cronies. And as part of the festivities, Herodias' daughter, Salome, danced for him. Now take note, it doesn't say Herod's daughter, but Herodias' daughter. So this would have been Herod's niece daughter of his brother Philip and Herodias's union. And by the way, the Jewish historian Josephus provides her name for us, that it's uh, Salome. She's not named in the Gospels. This is a bit like that song, I Am My Own Grandpa. Have y'all heard that one before? It, it gets like this. So get this, all right? Salome was the daughter of Herod's niece and Herodias, his wife, and also his own niece by his brother Philip. If I just look at their family tree, I'm sure it goes like this, all over the place. Most likely, Salome would have been about 12 to 15 years old. And now there is no indication in the text here that, that she danced suggestively, only that Herod was pleased to have her perform in front of his company. And he wants to reward her. And he rashly promises this girl up to half his kingdom in front of his guest. He even sealed it with an oath. And most likely, Herod is thinking... What could a teenage girl do to be harmful? It's obvious that Herod didn't know teenage girls. I'm convinced of that. 
He goes to, or she goes to her mother and asks for advice as to what she should ask for. And Herodias tells her, well, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's what you should ask for. This is pretty vicious. Now, there are some that call this an account into question here because people wouldn't want to party with a severed head lying in front of them. But this was an ancient culture in which violence was part of everyday activity. And it was also a culture in which, at least among the aristocracy, reputation meant everything one had to save face. And Herodias saw a chance to depose her greatest critic and improve her position of power. And she took it. And it put Herod into a quandary. He didn't really want to kill John. He feared the consequences, both from John and the people. But he had given his oath before his illustrious guest. And he feared their opinion of him even more. Therefore, he had the deed done. John was beheaded. His, his head is placed on a platter and presented to the girl, and she takes it to her mother. And John is dead merely for speaking the truth. So now we've learned from this excursus what Herod thought of Jesus, that he might be John raised from the dead, and even how Herod probably feared that. And now we've also seen how John came to be imprisoned and to die. And also from this, we see the close connection between Jesus and John's ministry. Jesus must have been preaching similar messages in comparison here to John the Baptist in order that Herod associated him with John. No doubt, just like John, Jesus was preaching on the need for righteousness, for holiness, for the coming kingdom, and to repent and to be ready for it. We are told in John's gospel that the Baptist encouraged his followers to follow Jesus because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we read here in verse 12 that John's disciples gave his body a proper burial and then immediately reported to Jesus what had occurred. John's ministry was closely related to Jesus. John was the forerunner. Jesus would honor what came before him in John's work by completing the task of being the Savior. And finally, we see that this sets the scene for what happens next in verse 13. When Jesus receives the news, he wants to get away in the moment, to get someplace desolate by himself. So he travels by boat along the Sea of Galilee, but that's short-lived as the crowds follow him. And in the chapter ahead, we'll see it reveals a compassionate Savior who in his grief will set it aside for the moment in order to minister to others in needs. He, he sets aside his own needs to care for the needs of the masses. Verses 1 through 12 are a revealing digression or, or a side note that we learn what the governing authorities thought of Jesus, what happened to John the Baptist, that John and Jesus are still closely connected together, and also Jesus' frame of mind before he feeds the 5,000 plus. But what can we personally learn from it? Is it just information? Or is there truth that should be transformative? I think so, because there's such a contrast between the two primary characters of the passage, between Herod and John the Baptist. We see ultimately what was most important to each man, and I can qualify it in this way. One feared man, the other feared God. If we examine Herod's life with the little that we know about him from the Gospels, he was a man that drifted on waves of opinions. He was concerned with what others thought of him. 
Now, to be sure, if he was more powerful and could get what he wanted with ease, then opinions didn't matter. Obviously, he wasn't so concerned about what his brother Philip thought of him when he took his wife. Nor was he concerned about the king of Nabatia when he divorced his own wife to marry Herodias. He was willing to live with the implications if it could be sorted out and he was in a more powerful position. But the unknown variables were where he failed. He feared what might come. And there was no security in his life. Zach Schlegel states it well with this quote. Fear isn't just being frightened of someone. It can also involve being desperate to gain something that we think we need, respect, attention, love, or approval, or fear the frantic concern we will lose it once we have it. Herod demonstrated this. He didn't want to kill John because he was afraid of what the population would do. They might riot against him. He feared John, perhaps from what God could do to his health and his safety. He feared what his birthday guest thought of him. What if he broke his word in front of them? He would be perceived as weak. They would never form an alliance with him. And most likely later, he will return Jesus to Pontius Pilate because he feared the implications of either what the religious leaders might do or the population might do or the Roman government might do if he were to punish Jesus instead. And then we also find out in Acts chapter 12 that he lost this fear of all of these things because he saw it pleased the people to pursue the deaths of the disciples. Herod was a person who feared man, and as such, he rode on the waves of opinion. He never governed himself. He was primarily governed by the opinions of others. Deepak Raju states the problem well. He writes, fundamentally, any struggle with fearing others is a worship problem. That's a good line. Fundamentally, any struggle with fearing others is a worship problem. We must answer the question, who or what ultimately holds our allegiance? What commands my behavior? And this is so much a problem in our current climate, isn't it? Will I behave a certain way because of what others think about me? Will, will they call me a racist? Will they call me a homophobe? Will they call me a religious lunatic? Will I get canceled? It's very powerful, isn't it? But then this is also displayed in our personal relationships. We tell ourselves, well, I know if I, I should stand on my principles here, but but I may lose that child or that boyfriend or that spouse if I don't do what they want me to do. Fear of man can control what you wear, who you vote for, what you listen to, what you watch, because you don't want to be the one missing out. Psychologists call it FOMO, fear of missing out. It's why you so desperately need that approval when you post on Facebook and Instagram and you need all those little hearts and all of those thumbs ups. You got to keep coming back to see if others have given you their approval. And these companies know how powerful this reinforcement is. They design their platforms with this in mind. Herod was a man who was motivated by the fear of others. And the only way to overcome fear is to replace it with a bigger and better fear. Like with our second figure here. John, on the other hand, he feared the Lord. 
And when I use the word fear here, again, I don't just mean to be frightened, but who or what you are ultimately accountable to. Whose opinion matters the most? We just read earlier in the service, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you understand who God is, then you understand that God is the all-wise creator. He knows what is best for our lives, even if present circumstances dictate otherwise. After all, He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the one who ultimately decides who gets to live eternally in His redeemed new world without sin. Therefore, he knows what is best. I should care more about what he says than anyone else or even my own opinions. I love the quote that's on the front of your worship guide from Oswald Chambers. He says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you, fear, if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. It is the understanding that I know the God who has numbered my days. I am confident of the salvation that he has obtained for me in his son, Jesus Christ. And not even I can mess that up. So why should I fear anything else? John didn't. He could have quit speaking out against Herod and Herodias. He could have said, well... When I was in Herod's fortress, you know, we sat down, we had a conversation, and, and he explained things to me. And now I have a better understanding of how they became husband and wife. Love is love. Who am I to interfere? So I no longer need to say anything about it. And I'm sure he would have been released. But he didn't. Remember from chapter 3, John drew the ire of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he called them a bunch of snakes. They too wanted him dead, but they didn't plot against him because the people perceived him to be a prophet and they were afraid of public opinion. They feared others' reactions, but it didn't stop John from preaching against self-righteous legalism. Why? Because John feared God first and foremost. Even his question to Jesus back in Matthew 11 when he says, are you the one or should we look for another, revealed his deep desire to follow the Lord and be in his will. And as this new section develops in Matthew chapter 14, we will see in the weeks ahead, should the Lord will, that Jesus will be just like John, where he'll be more concerned about doing the will of his father than fearing the opinions of man. In chapter 15, he will have more confrontations with the Pharisees, the ones who actually came from Jerusalem. He will heal a Gentile woman's daughter despite public opinion of him. He will confront the Sadducees over supernatural signs. And he's going to go toe-to-toe with Satan himself in chapter 16. And eventually all of that will lead to the cross. And Jesus will so thoroughly obey his Father, even to the point of death on the cross, that he will display his ultimate allegiance to God the Father. So what about you? Whom do you fear? What do you fear? I'm going to give you just a diagnostic question, one that can help you. It's on your outline. You can use it to help you. But I want you to figure it out by filling in the blank. I need blank to make me supremely happy. I need blank to make me supremely happy. What would you fill in that blank? What would you put in it? Because whatever you place in the blank 
fear of losing that or not having it will control you. You might fill it with, well, I need the respect and the prestige of others in order to make me happy. I need my child to behave well in order to make me happy. Or I need my child to be successful in order to make me happy. I need wealth to make me happy. I need my spouse to submit to me in order to make me happy. I need my boyfriend or my girlfriend to make me happy. I need my career to make me happy. I need my health in order to be happy. Whatever you place in that blank will control your affections. It will control your affections. It will control your emotions, and it will control your decisions and your behavior. Jesus was very clear. No one can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other. So what is it that you fear not having or you fear losing? And there is beauty in fearing God. When you place Jesus in your blank, it can never be taken away from you. At the cross, Jesus made a once and for all payment for you. He has, he has purchased you in full. He has you. He has secured your place with him. And when he is first in your life, everything else falls into place. It's not always easy because there will always be battles that will try to infiltrate your blank to try to tell you you need Jesus in this too. But ultimately, he will show you he is worthy. And perfect love drives out what? Fear. That's First John. Perfect love will drive out fear. So did you come here this morning fretful? Was there something that you were fearing as you even entered into these doors? Fear of something you don't have? Fear of something you're afraid of losing? Know that you can be secure in Christ, but I would not be doing justice if I just said, okay, see everybody else later. <laughs> Go deal with your fear, right? I need to provide you just with a way to overcome those fears, to replace whatever you fear with a bigger and better fear of fearing God. And an easy place to do that right now is Psalm 33, the psalm that we've been studying all year. It's a good one. If you will, turn to Psalm 33 in your Bibles. This is found on page 463 of your pew Bible. And I want to encourage you, come Wednesday night, hear Den and Clardy, one of our elders, speak on this section of Psalm 33 as you learn what it means to fear the Lord. Because what you need to do is you need to get the truth of God's Word telling you about His attributes, about who He is, so that God has His rightful place in your life and everything else knows where to take its position underneath it. And so you go to God's Word, which is true, and you read things like verses 4 and 5, which Steve Smart covered this past Wednesday night. For the Word of the Lord is upright, and all of His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And then you'll read the section like Den is going to cover on verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
Isn't it nice to know that God is sovereignly in control? That nothing is happening outside of his will. You'll read verses like verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. An army is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. But look at this part. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who what? Fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That's his covenantal love, by the way. Steadfast love, that hesed, that, that love that he will always supply and give you no matter what. Those who put their hope in that, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Therefore, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Replace your fear with a bigger and better fear by understanding the God who is sovereignly in control. Allow Jesus Christ to see him in all of his glory. Be your vision as you see what he has obtained for you so that you might be able to stand before this great and awesome God. Let's pray. Lord, we submit ourselves to you in this moment. Lord, we all, there's not a single person in this room that does not have some fear that they need to confess right now to you, something that's making them anxious, something that makes them fretful, something that has infiltrated their blank other than you. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever that fear is, that we will begin to repent, Lord. And the repentance begins by knowing you, knowing who you are, knowing the truth of your word, because, Lord, it's not just changing action. We need truth to change our actions. We need to turn towards something. And so, Lord, we pray that you would guide our steps right now. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us back to the truth to to implement it in our lives over and over again, to meditate on it, to preach to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves, to know that your word still speaks, it's living and it's active today, reminding us of the God who you are and help us to supplant whatever other fears we have with that healthy fear and awe of you. Oh, Lord, you were so good to reveal yourself to us. And even in the midst of that, we don't have to fear knowing that Christ has taken all of our sin and that we can stand before you in his righteousness. And when we see Jesus, we see you. We see the love. We see the mercy. We see the grace. We see the kindness. We see a God who is for us. Oh, thank you, Lord. So, Lord, may we praise you with this hymn so that we would see you in your glory. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.